Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning I'm reading from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. That's right. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place apart. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him from foot on the towns. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a lonely place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so a few years ago, we, we were planning a trip out to far west Texas, and um, my wife, uh, God bless her, who has a terrible, terrible, crippling fear of heights, said to me, we should hike Guadalupe Peak, which if you don't know, is the tallest mountain in Texas. Uh, and I should point out, it's, it, it's, the, the peak is a little over 8,000 feet above sea level. And, you know, people in, in other states like Colorado like to brag about their 14,000 peaks, foot peaks, right? They're so tall. 14,000 feet, your little 8,000-foot mountain has nothing on us. But do you know that that height is measured from sea level, right? So if you're in Colorado and you hike up a 14,000-foot mountain, you start well above sea level, so you actually don't go 14,000 feet up, right? You might go, you know, six or 7,000 feet. Whereas in Texas, at the bottom of Guadalupe Peak, you start at sea level, right? So we went way further than those little wimps up in Colorado. <laughs> so... You know, she tells me this, right? And I know she's terrified of fights. And so I said, put down the drink. You've had too much. <laughs> she said, no, I want to do it. I, I, I want to get over this fear of fights. So let's, let's climb the mountain. And so I said, okay. So we got out there and we had to leave. We were staying in a little town a few hours away. So we left before sunrise. Got up at like 4.35 in the morning. And drove down these little, you know, perfectly straight, perfectly flat West Texas highways to the mountain. And, uh, you know, started before sunrise and, and started walking. And, uh, you know, you can put the next slide up if you want. So this is, this is what the trail looks like. It's about maybe two feet wide. Um, this is it the whole way, right? It all looks like this. There's no safety rails, you know. You're, on, you're literally on the side of a mountain, so you can, there's, that's just like a steep drop-off there at the end. And you can kind of get a sense, this is about halfway up maybe, um, and you can kind of get a sense of how far down already the actual ground is from where you are. Uh, and remember, I'm married to a woman with a fear of heights. So go to the next slide. So there she is at the top. She made it. She survived. Yeah, that's right. She's not here, so don't, you know. 
Uh, <laughs> so there we are at the top. And you, when you're at the top, by the way, there's, there's like these swallows that try to you know, dive bomb you and seem to aim for your face deliberately. And uh, so it's not pleasant, but we made it to the top and, and we got there and, and took our picture and rested. And you know, she's smiling in this picture because this is before we realized we had to walk all the way back down. So we could have one more. Just and uh, so there we are, right side of the mountain. And again, you can see just how far up we are. And you can see the kind of right. You just walk along a little two-foot trail along the side of that steep mountain the whole way. And there's one little stretch that we came to where uh, there's no more dirt. The dirt goes away, so you can't actually see the trail. You're, you just have this sort of sloped rock face to go across. And uh, my wife was going first, and she got to that part. And she gets out onto the, the part where there's no more flat trail under you. It's just this slanted rock to walk on. And she does this, <laughs> right? <laughs> Clinging to this, the face of the mountain and just sort of crab walks her way across the rock. And as she started doing that, I called out to her. We were, this is not too far from the top. And did you know, by the way, that there's a thing called a false summit where you think you're at the top of the mountain, but in fact you're not? Um, and did you know that when that happens, your wife will invent all new curse words? So we, we, we pass the false summit and we get to this, this strip of the rock with no path and she's clinging to the rock and she's crab walking across and I said to her, you know, we're, we're almost at the top. We've made it really far. If you wanted to turn back now and go home, we could. It would be okay. That was the wrong thing to say. I learned that really fast. Uh, <laughs> and, and as we're, we're, you know, going across this part, this, what is to that point at least the most challenging part of the whole trail, and we're, we're moving at a snail's pace because she's terrified she's going to slip and fall. Um, we noticed this couple in their early 70s just walking right by us as if they're taking a stroll down the street on a Sunday morning. Cool as can be. They passed us up and beat us to the top. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, we have to turn around now, don't we? And we, we got in the car after, after it, we you know, made it back down and got in the car. And she turns to me and says, we should do that again sometime. It's like, Are you sure that's water in your water bottle? What were you drinking the whole time, right? But, you know, as it turned out, it's not actually that hard of a trail to do. Now, don't get me wrong, it's exhausting, right? You're going up 8,000 feet and then down 8,000 feet. And so it takes a lot of physical exertion and you're worn out by the end and your legs are sore and everything hurts and you're covered in dust and sweat and you're all nasty and you just want to sleep, right? Because it's, it's, it's a long, long day. But it's not that hard, right? There's no, there's no point on the trail at which you actually need like mountain climbing skills to get up there, right? Elderly couples are taking a stroll along the top of the mountain in the afternoon, right? It's not that difficult. You just got to put one foot in front of the other. It seems, at first, to be an impossible thing. And if you're not used to it, it, it might seem like you get to certain spots along that trail, right, where the, the, the flat part goes away and you're just walking across these sloping, smooth rocks, and it seems like something you could not possibly do until you step out and do it. And do you know, I, I overheard what my wife was saying the whole time she was crab walking across that flat rock, uh, up until I said, it, "You want to go home?" And then what she said changed, but but up until that point, up until that point, she was just saying, kind of under her breath, "The Lord has me. The Lord has me." So she stepped out in faith and put one foot in front of the other and did what she thought was impossible. 
See, we are so often faced with what we think are overwhelming problems and underwhelming resources. So the disciples come to Jesus, and there's a crowd of people, and it's 5,000 men plus women and children, so probably really think 15,000, maybe even 20,000, right? Because back then, they don't have just one kid. They've got like 47 of them, and um, they're all there, right? So you might have a crowd of 20,000 people out here, and they say, Lord, um, we need to send them away to go eat. And I kind of suspect that what was really going on is the disciples said, we're hungry and we'd like to eat. <laughs> can we send them away so we can get a break and eat? And Lord, we're in this lonely place and there's so many of them, they need to go and find you do something about it. Go feed them. Well, no, see, Lord, you don't understand. We've only got the, the five loaves of bread and the two fish. That's not enough for them. All right, all right, bring it here. Give me the food. And he prays over it and he, he blesses it. And they give it out. See, they thought they had an overwhelming problem. And all they could see was their, their little serving of food. Maybe just enough for the disciples to have had a light meal. And you can kind of imagine the confusion on their face when Jesus says, bring me the food, we're going to feed this crowd, right? Lord, my mom packed me this lunch. I don't want to give it up, right? It's, it's, <laughs> I'd like to keep my food. I'm hungry. But you should also notice that, that once Jesus tells them, once, once Jesus knows what they have and he tells them to bring it anyway, they stop arguing. See, by, by this time in the Gospels, they have seen him do quite a few amazing things. They just saw him heal all the sick people in the crowd. And so while I'm sure there was a part of them that was thinking, I'm really hungry and I would, I would actually like to just eat the loaves and fish we brought ourselves, I, I have to imagine part of them was also thinking, oh, cool, what's he going to do now? Right? What's going to happen this time? How's he going to fix the problem? Let's wait and see. I've got to imagine there was some excitement and anticipation on that part now that they've actually figured out that this guy can, can do things we can't. So if he tells us to bring the loaves and fish, we're going to bring them. So they brought their underwhelming resources and gave them to the Lord to fix an overwhelming problem. You know, pastors deal with this all the time, right? Because we feel the weight of every problem the church has on our shoulders. You may not know this, but they don't actually teach you in seminary how to handle a church budget. There is no class on finances. And most of us are not good with numbers. So then they put us in the finance meeting, right? And we just kind of, our eyes glaze over and do what you want. I don't know what any of this means, right? Um, and we trust that the finance committee actually knows what they're doing. And, and luckily here they do. Praise be to God. Because if I was managing the money, we'd be broke. Right? But all of the problems that the church faces, we, we feel the weight of that responsibility, even if it's not necessarily something that we are actually responsible for. We're the leader of the church. We feel it. We feel the weight of the overwhelming problem. And we know that we do not have the skills we need to meet to, to solve it. And it's not just the actual practical problems of the church. I mean, if you want to put yourself in my shoes, imagine, imagine that a mother comes into your office the weekend after her son commits suicide and asks you for words of comfort and asks you to tell her if her son is in heaven or hell or not and asks you to pray with her because she is not sure she can pray on her own. Trust me, 
that right there is overwhelming. And you would not feel that you had anything of value to offer that woman. But you would have no choice because she's there. And she is relying on you to be the connection to the God she feels disconnected from. And all she wants is a little word of hope or comfort. In the midst of a pain you can't imagine. And so you have to do something. See, this is what we deal with all the time. Overwhelming problem. Underwhelming resource. Think of all the problems that that are facing us today. We are in a nation that is more divided than it has been at any other time in living memory. And you and I, we're called to be peacemakers. That's the church's job in society. We make the peace. We unite people by giving them a message of hope that can't come from anywhere else. But how exactly are we supposed to make the peace when those divisions run through the church as well? Do you know how many times I have had to preach a sermon saying, you know what? You people are putting your hope in a political party and not in the gospel. And the gospel has equal critiques for both sides. And maybe, just maybe, you should consider whether or not you are bowing down at the altar of this candidate or this candidate and you are worshiping them and not worshiping God only to have the person that had in mind while I was preaching that come up to me after the sermon and say, Pastor, thank you for preaching that. So-and-so over there really needed to hear that message today. (laughs) Every time. Remember, you people add me on Facebook. I know what you post. We face all those same problems. We bring them right here into the church. So how are we supposed to go and make the peace out there? Even our own individual church, right? The issues that face just this one congregation, paying off this building, making sure our staff are taken care of, making sure the pumpkin patch is staffed, right? Or even just filling the empty seats, bringing the message of the gospel to Corpus Christi. You know, you could take every church in this town, fill it to capacity at every one of its Sunday services over the weekend, and you'd still have two or 300,000 people not in a church on Sunday morning. The mission field here is huge. The opportunity is there. But how exactly are we supposed to make a dent in it? What are we supposed to do? All of these problems look impossible and overwhelming, and it doesn't seem as though what little we have to offer is going to make a difference. It doesn't seem when you look at the news and see everything that is happening in the world, it's hard to imagine how you, you specifically, can do anything that will make a difference. We feel overwhelmed. And maybe even a bit insignificant. And as a result, we turn to other people. People we think could make a bigger difference than we could. We turn to politicians. Some of you turn to pastors, only to be disappointed in your pastor, right? We, we, this is how false prophets rise up, isn't it? People who preach messages like, if you just pray hard enough, I'll give, God will give you a mansion and a Ferrari and it'll all be good. Because that's a comforting message. It gives you a clear explanation. If your life is bad, you aren't praying hard enough. Fix it. And God will take care of you and then you don't have to worry about anything else. This is how those things happen. We have these problems we can't imagine solving. We can't see what our own contribution would do to make a difference. And so we don't try. But where we see problems, Jesus sees 
opportunity. Right? The disciples tell Jesus, Lord, there's a problem and we need you to fix it. And he says, no, no, no. You fix it. Go feed them. Do you notice he doesn't actually specifically tell them, go find enough food for all those people. He doesn't say, go out into the villages and buy enough food to feed them. He doesn't even say, you guys pray hard enough over this food so that it multiplies and then we'll feed them. All he says is, you bring me what you have and let me worry about the rest. Bring me what you have. Come on. Do you notice? After everyone's fed, there is one full basket of leftovers for each disciple. God took what they gave and multiplied it and returned it to them even greater than it was before. And everyone was fed. He does not ask us to do the impossible. He asks us to give what we can and do what we can. He doesn't ask us to give what we do not have, but he also can't use what we don't give. And see, this is how the Lord blesses those who are faithful with their time and their money and their gifts and their talents and their witness. By taking what you give and blessing it and multiplying it and making you a witness to a miracle. That, that is how he blesses us. In the, in the Old Testament, it happens too, lo and behold. In the book of Nehemiah, uh, you know, this is set about 150 years after the exile to Babylon. So the, the people get carried off to Babylon. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. And a few decades later, Babylon's conquered by Persia, and the Jewish people are set free. They can return home. And this is set even further after that. Nehemiah is a Jewish man who did not, whose family did not return to, to uh, Jerusalem. He stays in the Persian capital, and he works in the court of the king of Persia. And uh, the book begins with him meeting and talking to people who have just returned from the city of Jerusalem. So in Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with certain men out of Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews that survived who had escaped exile and concerning Jerusalem. And he said to me, the survivors there in the province who escaped exile are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. 150 years. The wall has laid in ruin. No one's fixed it. So he's, he's heartbroken and, and ashamed over this and goes to the king of Persia and says, can I go and fix that? Which is kind of a bold claim, because why should he care about the wall in Jerusalem? He says, can I go fix it? And not only does the king say, yes, you can go fix it, but then he gives, tells him, I'll help you with the supplies, I'll help you with the money, I'll send you royal decrees so that everyone, all the officials you encounter will know that you're doing what I want you to do. So he gets to Jerusalem, and then in chapter 2, he tells people this. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer disgrace. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been upon me for good, and also of the words which the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now you might think, 
right? As he returns to Jerusalem and tells them, look guys, I've got all the supplies, I've got all the money, I've got letters from the king that says it's okay, we can rebuild the wall, thank God, right? You'd think that like the whole city would rise up and rejoice and go help him, uh, but no, no. Uh, he'll go on to list all the people that help him, and it's like 40 or 50. Maybe a few more that he forgets to list. But lo and behold, in chapter 6, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations round about us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. 52 days. 52 days to fix a wall that had lain in ruins for 150 years with maybe 40 people helping. You know how they did it? One brick at a time. No great miracle. No angel descending from above with a completed section of the wall to put down. Just a bunch of guys waking up in the morning and putting one brick on top of another. We don't even know, by the way, if they were like professional bricklayers or construction workers. They could have been traders or or potters or homeless people living in the streets begging for scraps. For all we know, that's who they were. But when Nehemiah called for help, they said, you know what, I bet I can put one brick on top of another. I bet that's within my skill set. And they showed up. And you've got to imagine that when they showed up on that first day and they're looking at the entire city of Jerusalem, at the wall which no longer exists, that they have to rebuild completely around the whole perimeter of the city, and there's only 40 of them, you have to imagine they thought, I'm not sure we can do this. That's a big task. Nehemiah himself must have had that thought because not only is he looking at this relatively small group of people who have to rebuild the entire wall, but he's getting death threats from people. He has to have half his workers stand on guard all day and all night armed with spears to make sure they aren't attacked as they complete the work. He's opposed at every turn, and yet he prays, and then he shows up and does the work. Brick by brick, the wall is built. God does not give us impossible tasks. He does not ask us to perform miracles. All he says is, you show up and give what you can and watch me do the rest. All he asks is that we show up and offer what we're able to offer. And it may not seem like much, but your 10-second prayer might change a life. Your $5 gift might be what puts us over the top and lets us finish that building over there. Right? If you think you're too small to make a difference, try spending a night in a closed room with a mosquito. <laughs> You'll learn real fast. The Lord will always put us in the right place at the right time with the right gifts to do what he needs to be done. As long as we are faithful with it. There is no gift too small. There's no time too short. There's no talent that is irrelevant. And there is no story not worth telling. You know, when you you join the church or when you take your baptismal vows or your confirmation vows, you, you promise to uphold the church by your presence, your gifts, your witness, and your service. So you have taken, just about all of you have taken, a solemn vow before the almighty creator of the universe to show up to church. So good job, you did it. You're here to show up, to give, 
to serve. And then the one we always like to forget is to witness. Right? To tell other people what the Lord is doing in our lives and through our lives and where we see him at work and why we follow him. And you know, a lot of people will tell me, I, you know, I don't like to do that because my life's just not that interesting. Right? I don't have a great conversion story. I haven't seen miracles. I haven't heard the voice of God. It's a pretty boring story. But you know what? There are people who want to hear the boring story. There are people who don't want to hear the great exciting thing about how you heard a voice crying out from the heavens and calling you to repent from your sins and you turned from your evil ways. Sometimes they just want to hear that you grew up a normal little kid, you went to church, and look, it worked. Sometimes they want to know that God works in that way too. There is no story that is not worth telling. Someone wants to hear it. And if the Lord is prompting you to share it, you can bet he's going to bless it and use it to work miracles. So we don't want you to give or show up out of a sense of obligation. We don't want you to give because of the tax break. You know, a few years back when they, when they raised the standard deduction and they doubled it, do you know how many of us pastors were genuinely concerned that people would stop giving because they wouldn't get a tax break? Do you know how well-founded that fear was? Because it happened. We don't want you to give for that reason or out of a sense of duty or obligation or because the pastor keeps telling you to. We want you to give and to show up and serve and tell people what's going on like the disciples did with the bread, coming there thinking, I wonder what God is going to do this time. I wonder what he's going to do with this money that I give. I wonder how he'll multiply it. I wonder how he'll bless it. I wonder what miracles we will see after we contribute what we have to offer. We want you to give in the full expectation and the absolute certainty that when you give, when you serve, when you show up, God will do great things. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.